0: Welcome to the Plant-Based Canada podcast. Join us as we talk with experts to explore the field of nutritional sciences and how our food choices impact our health and the environment. We sit down with Canadian doctors, dietitians, athletes, climate experts, and more to break down the evidence behind a whole foods plant-based diet and discuss the practical steps you can take in your effort to shift toward a healthier lifestyle. Today I talk with Nicholas Carter. He's an ecologist and co-founder of plantbaseddata.org. He is the communications lead for a Canadian Center for Climate Services Data Hub, and serves as an advisory board member to several food and environment focused organizations. He's also a science writer on the interconnection between agriculture and planetary health. He completed a master's degree in environmental practice from Royal Roads University, where his research focused on the global greenhouse gas emissions that are attributed to animal agriculture. And to hear more about the environmental impact of our food system, Nicholas will be speaking at our upcoming virtual Canadian plant-based nutrition conference on May 28th and May 29th. Our annual conference provides evidence-based education by Canadian experts on plant-based nutrition for individual health, as well as highlighting the environment and social concerns of our food system. Sign up to our newsletter on our website or visit our social media to be kept up to date on the content and ticket sales. Nick, thank you so much for taking the time to join us with the Plant-Based Canada podcast. It's exciting to finally get to to meet you. I feel like we've been talking for a while, but thank you so much for for giving us your
1: time. Thanks so so much for having me. Appreciate it.
0: Let's get started from the beginning here. I kind of want to get a little bit of a background from you so we can introduce the some of our listeners to you. You are an environmental researcher. You have a master's degree in environmental p- practice. I want to know what that is and what that means, but I kind of also, you know, just want to get why, why you went down this career path and a sense of, of how you grew up, what got you interested to start thinking about, you know, ecolo- ecology and the environment and all these things and how our food choices uh, impact those
1: yeah. So I'd say the the seed for me was planted uh, as a child, just visiting lots of national parks. I grew up in New Brunswick on the East coast of Canada. And yeah, I mean, I was just always interested in kind of the relationship between, you know, nature and the living world. Um, some of that probably came from, I used to watch CBC documentaries like nature, the nature of things, and even kind of in my younger adult life, David Attenborough's planet earth it just kind of you know amazed me like the appreciation of nature now I didn't initially get into environmental work you know out of high school I I first did an undergrad in marketing um, because I was also very just interested in you know storytelling and what's how do you convince people of things and um, yeah so this led me down a route that wasn't necessarily related to that but um, ultimately I came back to it because you know I just it was more fulfilling trying to address something that you know, society needed versus just trying to sell something. So, um, yeah, that's what led me to uh, a master's in environmental practice. And uh, this degree specifically looked at kind of like the root causes of, you know, the environmental crisis that we face from many different angles. It uh, didn't specifically look at food, but certainly a lot of my uh, particular research and case studies uh, were specific to food. And I suppose, you know, about six years ago when, you know, I was in my master's, it was really this that kind of opened my mind to uh, this whole world of you know food and agriculture uh, in a big way. Because before that, for the most part, I was focused on environmental technology and you know solar panels and, and wind farms. But then when I saw just a couple of case studies of not only the issues with agriculture but also you know, all the opportunities in this space, I completely shifted everything to this. You know, personally, I felt a bit like a hypocrite too, because, you know, I was eating the, the typical, you know, Canadian diet, high in meat, uh, dairy, fish, all that stuff. So yeah, as I was kind of diving into the research, doing a lot of writing and reports in this space over a few years, my partner and I at the time we decided right away overnight, we try eating fully plant-based uh, for 30 days. And um, this was among a few other changes too, to try to, you know, live more eco-friendly as best as possible. And um, yeah, just over the course of that time, just learning about it, getting recipes, also like the science behind why it's important, uh, I never looked back and it's been, you know, that way ever since. So that's kind of what got me into thinking about the environment, thinking about the you know, deep rooted issues facing this. And, um, it's been a passion really ever since.
0: I think it's interesting that you, you kind of went down that route and then it was a little while after before, I, I guess you came across some of the data that, that really, you know, was the the shining light to, to consider those things. So I guess in, in what you studied, what you, what you've been doing, uh, in your academic career, is it very, I'm just curious, is it, is it very evident in when, when you're studying that type of, when you're in that field, that what we eat is, is a big factor or is, would you say it's more focused on like. Big oil and fracking and things like that.
1: So there's there's a lot to that question. So like certainly in like environmental groups and uh, the overall focus, it's been all about energy. And there's good reason to that for uh, you know for many reasons. Fossil fuels and energy is a huge part of the problem. And I would I would extend that to being we have two major huge huge problems. And there's many solutions, but uh, the two major problems we have is is a, uh, an energy system relying on fossil fuels and a food system relying on meat. Those two things do so much harm in many different ways, and uh, the the latter with food, it doesn't get much attention. Certainly, in academic circles, there's there's a lot, in, in the last, I'd say six, seven, eight years, there's been a big increase in terms of the the attention and focus on on food and agriculture. But even environmental groups, it's um, you know so far pretty far behind in that space. So let's, let's get into that a little bit.
0: Talk to me more about um, how our food choices, just the common consumer, how our food choices contribute to CO2 and, and methane emissions, and then, of course, to the wider uh, conversation around global warming.
1: Yeah, so there's a 2021 study in Nature Food, and it showed that food overall is responsible for 25 to 42% of all global emissions. Uh, typically, that's not the figure you would see. You would see it's about you know one quarter. But um, based on this, it's about at least a third of all emissions come from from food. And the way these studies are done, and that's not looking at the kind of indirect benefits of shifting land to, to be more forest. And if you shift land to be more forest, you're going to draw down a lot more carbon. So really, that's like a base number. Uh, it could be a lot higher. Uh, I've done writing myself that, that showed if you factor in the carbon opportunity cost, which is essentially the the opportunity to draw down carbon into into forests by shifting away from, you know, intensive land use, then uh, animal agriculture itself could be responsible for uh, upwards of 30, 37 percent, you know, up in that amount. But um, yeah, in in Canada, uh, that number for, for methane, for example, uh, it's 24%. So animal agriculture is responsible for 24% of Canada's total methane emissions, uh, which is huge. Methane in the latest IPCC report was shown to contribute 40% of all warming since pre-industrial times. So methane is a huge part of the issue. Methane comes from two sources. It comes two two main sources. One is cattle, ruminants. The other is energy sources like uh, fracking and natural gas. So it's about equally those two. Yeah, food overall, it's a huge part of uh, environment beyond greenhouse gases. So uh, for biodiversity loss and land use, it's, uh, it's the biggest contributor. So it's the biggest cause of deforestation. It's, it's among the biggest causes of uh, habitat loss and biodiversity. And this is just, if you just think logically, this is just because of the amount of land it takes. Uh, half of all habitable land uh, is used directly for, uh, for agriculture. And uh, of all agricultural land, uh, 80% of that is for animal agriculture. So we know directly what's using land and what's displacing nature. And this has been a huge part of what's drawn me to this topic because uh, we need a lot more uh, protected wild places for wild animals to flourish. Uh, and we can talk a bit more about that later, but it's, um, it, it's a huge part of this. So how do we reduce the footprint on land? It's by shifting away from grazing for beef, grazing cattle for beef, and growing rows and rows of feed crops for combined animals. And instead, if you just grow plants directly for humans, you're gonna use way less land. Yeah, greenhouse gases is a big part of it, but it goes into land use, biodiversity, water use. Um, and, and fundamentally, we just need to think, how do we feed a growing population? We're expecting to see uh, you know, about 10 billion people uh, by 2050. So uh, in order to feed that amount of population, we're going to have to grow 50% more food at least. So how do we do that without ruining the planet? And now's the time to think about this stuff versus later. There's a lot of stuff I want to dig into here. So first, you, this goes back to your
0: your days when you were thinking about marketing and things like that. There's the question of so you you there's the controversial uh, number that you mentioned in the beginning when we were talking about how uh, CO2 emissions and how much of that is is attributable to animal agriculture. And there's a lot of pushback from a lot of different groups, lobbyists specifically. But that's what I want to talk about first. Is so every time a study comes out there's huge amounts of pushback depending on which way the study goes it's still to this day we're at like we're at we're beyond the precipice of where we should be when it comes to fighting climate change but it still seems like politicians and governments are dragging their their feet my question i guess is how much power really do these lobby groups have you can speak to probably you know Canada and the US maybe a little more we have that's I I think that's a lot more where you focus your attention but I'm assuming that this is the same around the world because we just had the COP26 not long ago and it seems like there wasn't much progress made on it. So how much power and why is there so much power in these lobby groups? And then the other thing too is I want to go back to the to the proteins like everything's focused on proteins but we can go with the with the with the lobbyist question first. What why is it that these groups hold so much power and sway?
1: This is a huge part of the issue and it's a phenomenal question. This is what we need to to, to look at to get to the root of this issue uh, because it does come down to, to marketing. Uh, this marketing and lobbying that's happening to people, this is a big reason why people consume uh, so much meat. So if we just look at some of the numbers, Tyson, one of the biggest companies in the world in terms of producing meat, Tyson has spent double what Exxon has, ExxonMobil, one of the biggest oil and gas companies on political cam- campaigns and 33% more on lobbying relative to their revenue. So relative to the revenue, they're spending more than Exxon. And Exxon, of course, has like, um, you know, all the eyes are on them. In terms of what they're doing, it, it's known that they've been manipulating the story around climate change for for decades. Exxon knew about the impacts of of climate change on the planet before most of the public, and they they doubled down on marketing and campaigns to to hide that and make it seem like it's not a big deal. The same is happening with with the the major companies: Tyson, Cargill, JBS. They're uh, the amount of money they spend on lobbying, uh, marketing is, is is up there with all the other biggest um, industries on the planet. So I mean, just some other numbers. So I mean, Tyson has spent the most on on lobbying, uh, twenty five million over the last two decades. So they're they're one of the worst. But I mean, Cargill is up there as well in terms of twenty one million. This is just in the U.S. I'd be a bit less in in Canada, but it's um it's up there. It's influential for different countries as well. And if anyone wants to kind of dig into like you know a really good study that looked at this in terms of the you know the responsibilities of these meat companies to to at least put targets in place to to reduce the study's called the climate responsibilities of industrial meat and dairy, and dairy producers it's um it's a new study from from 2021 and uh yeah very good because it looks at uh you know we see COP26 had all kinds of people, all kinds of companies urged to do these net zero plans. And uh, we can talk about that. There's a lot to talk about with that topic in, in general. But um, where I'm going with that is essentially uh, these companies didn't set even set any targets at all in terms of lowering their emissions. And those that did, they set these just poorly done accounting plans to to only consider what's called their scope 1 and 2 emissions so it didn't consider 90% of their climate impacts which would be the deforestation the production uh whether it's cattle versus uh, beans uh, it's just such a huge difference
0: why don't we why don't we continue on with cop 26 now that we're on it because I did want to ask you about that so so that just wrapped up not long ago right and like like we mentioned like there wasn't really much of a peep about animal agriculture um i'm guessing because you know, there's there was lobbying behind a lot of that, but but all these countries signed for net zero. We we did see that, but I mean, one of the countries that signed was was Brazil, who's <laughs> leading the way in terms of destroying the Amazon rainforest. But there was something big that happened in the last couple of days that I want to that I want to take make note of. Um, so so two questions on this for you. Do you think there was any actual progress made? And then I want to stress this point that on the last couple of days, when the communique was coming out, there were a bunch of revisions that were made. And it seemed to me, um, you might have a better handle on this than me, but it seemed to me that a lot of the revisions and these clauses that went back through on the final last days were business oriented. So they came out with all of these guidelines and they're like, we're going to do all these things. And then the last couple of days when all the journalists are kind of packing up and getting ready to leave, they come out with all of these little addendums and things that are like, we're going to do these things if they align with these business uh, objectives, I suppose. Do you you think that was strategic, I guess, doing it in the last couple of days like that? And do you think that there was any legitimate progress made in any of those? Because I'm assuming you you probably followed what was going on there.
1: I did. Yeah. Um, I I don't think there was much progress. I'd say the biggest takeaway I probably got from it was um, just the the amount of protests and demonstrations happening from uh, mostly youth and supporters of youth uh, for climate uh, outside of these, this conference, because um, you know, the, the youth movement as a whole has been one of the biggest, I would say optimistic uh, scenarios for, for this whole thing because it it takes a huge amount of people to, to make these changes. And uh, the more people we get engaged, the better and, um, you know they're demanding the changes that need to happen, and with COP26 uh, about a year ago or more, when I was looking into this specifically, there was very little input from industry, and I'm talking coal industry, but also like animal agriculture. And as soon as that started happening over time, then everything just started kind of becoming bureaucratic and political, and it was more like, you know, these companies are saying, "Well, I want to have a seat at the table because I'm trying to do my part." Well, bullshit. It's not true because they've had their chance over time to do their part. And now what's largely happening, and I say this is the biggest takeaway from COP26, is these companies aren't denying climate change and they're not denying the ecological impacts their products have, but instead they're actively trying to greenwash and deceive the public through what's largely called these net zero plans. Um, And if I could just briefly describe what's happening there, you'll have companies that will... um, you know, pay to offset some of their impacts. Some of that's through paying to plant trees or, or some of that is one of the most ridiculous cases is, um, you know, with, with coal and oil and gas companies that are buying these something called carbon uh, capture and storage, which is just like a huge facility that, that attempts to capture carbon out of the air and store it in, in like a facility that kind of turns it into something that can be put underground. One, it, it emits more emissions than, than it's actually taken away. So they're emitting more and actually doing this. Two, it's, it's insanely expensive. And maybe that'll come down over time, uh, but it's largely unproven um, at this point, at least. Uh, but more importantly, out of all that, it's really just another way of, of greenwashing, pretending like they're doing their part. And the same thing is happening with animal agriculture. And you're getting to this kind of regenerative agriculture movement where they might be storing some carbon, but that doesn't excuse the huge amount you're emitting by having that product. And when there's easily accessible alternatives, it's even worse. And with food in particular, there's abundantly accessible alternatives in choosing plant based So yeah, just to sum up that, overall it's really just there, there's two main things to take away from conferences like this. We need huge demonstrations to demand the changes we want. And it's happening to an extent from the youth and they need to be taken more seriously, I think. But but two, just don't be deceived by these net zero plans from these these big companies because it's um it's probably worse than climate denial because it's just deceiving so many people. You mentioned um, holistic grazing
0: and I want to get into that, but I kind of want to go back a couple steps and talk about meat production again, a little bit. You mentioned before that we have the capacity to, I mean, we, we, we grow so much crop to feed the animals that we use for, for protein. I want to, I want to park on that for a minute. You, you often hear when people talk about proteins, you know, one reason besides taste that people gravitate toward um, animal uh, proteins is because they think that they're higher quality proteins and all of this that I'm sure you've heard, but what about what goes in to raising that animal and the crops and the water and everything else? And then in terms of the actual protein or the calories out compared to if we were just to shift our focus to plant proteins. So that's the first, the in and the out of the calories, the resources that go into it, uh, plant proteins versus meat proteins, but then also this idea of, of, of quality of protein, is there really an argument between are the plant proteins a lesser quality than the, the animal product?
1: Yeah. So I think to the first part of your question, um, th- this is one of the, the biggest missed points with regards to the environmental impact of, of meat. And uh, I could sum it up like this. Uh, for, for every 100 calories of grain, say we're feeding grain to farmed animals, you only get 12 calories back for chicken and chickens known as one of the most eco-friendly meats. Uh, so that's off the top about a 90% loss right there in calories. And now if you're going to to to, to a pig to make pork, uh, you're only getting 10 calories back of that 100, 100 that went in. Uh, if it's beef, you're only getting about one to three calories back. So it's the, the least efficient. And the reason this is happening just very simply is, you know, we need to grow like, you know, in the case of cow, it's a thousand, two thousand pound mammal and they need to operate because they're living beings, right? So right off the top, with any of these animals that are in factory farms or feedlots, it's, it's such a huge waste of food, of land, of water, simply just using that as a source of food. And uh, so say, say for example, with, with, uh, with cows, there's a new movement to kind of shift them to, to, to pasture. Uh, Only about uh, three to 5% of all Cattle are fully grass-fed, right? I'm talking like uh, their full course of their life of maybe over two years max. They can live to 20, but I mean, let's say two two years is typically what it would be for like grass-fed beef. This is going to emit more methane uh, because eating a more fibrous diet over the course of their life and living a bit longer uh, emits three to four times more methane over the course of their life. And we already I've already mentioned how damaging methane is to to climate change, but two. It just uses far more far more land, and uh, if right now we're already using half of all habitable land, most of that is grazing. The few percent of cattle that are fully grazed their whole life, to then think of the idea is that we should shift fully to pasture, and use way more land. It just it's, one is not possible, uh, but two, if you wanted to shift even a bit more, it's going to be just mass deforestation, and um, there's really not going to be much wild spaces left. So with the course of, you know, pig and chickens, you know, they're not ruminant animals. They can't just live off the grass. They can live off some forage, but they largely do need to be, you know, fed uh, a good amount of, of plant protein. Yeah. Off the top, that's a huge amount of loss. I wish everyone working on food waste and cared so much of food waste. Like I do too. Uh, also cared about this topic because this is probably the largest source of food waste that's happening right now. It's it's a, it's a system that's dependent on animals for food. If we had everyone campaigning for food waste also include this within their campaigns, we'd be doing a lot better. I want to talk about regenerative
0: agriculture and holistic grazing. So you mentioned that before. One of the reasons why I really wanted to talk to you and one of the things I think you're great at on social media and Twitter and Instagram is um, how you tackle misinformation around around animal agriculture and food systems. And one of the things that you've kind of tackled more recently, uh, because it came out not long ago, earlier this year, was um, information on uh, this documentary called Kiss the Ground. Kiss the Ground is just one of these elements. There's, I mean, there's a bunch of information floating around. There's a bunch of social media influencers who are pushing this thing. There's this idea essentially that, um, and I know there are some good ideas in it, but but there are some ideas that are just out there but essentially it's that regenerative agriculture and holistic grazing are actually the answer to climate change um and as you just kind of demonstrated like even if you know like I, it, it's a pasture having the animals in the pasture like we just it, i mean there's just no way it doesn't really sync up um in terms of what what's emitted with these animals when they're in pasture, when they're grazing, but there's this idea of regenerative agriculture as actually being the answer. So first for listeners, can you explain this idea, what this is exactly and, and the idea behind holistic grazing uh, help us define that and then lay out if there's, if there's any, I guess, where did this come from? Like what's the, what's the, is there a kernel of truth to any of this or where did this all kind of spark from?
1: So, I mean, the term regenerative agriculture is not actually that new. It's been around for some time, but it's certainly had a resurgence over the last five or so years. And it's because popular documentaries, it's because it's because there's been a lot of corporate investment into uh, grazing as a source of food. Off the top, regenerative agriculture, it's... um, it's largely not defined for one. It's largely not regulated. So that in itself makes it a very difficult thing for a consumer to know that you're getting, say, regenerative beef. Uh, it's, it's largely just an unregulated marketing term right now. But typically what it's considered is doing a number of different things. So it involves some good things like, um, you know, including crop residue retention, um, uh, cover cropping, which really just protects the soil a bit better, uh, reducing the amount of uh, tillage specifically like mechanical uh, industrial tillage these are all good things and this is something that's been central to c- conservation agriculture and also indigenous practice practices of you know good agriculture that date back millennia so th- this is all good stuff now the the aspect that's kind of like anchoring this new regenerative agriculture movement is really like regenerative ranching is the idea that Uh, You need to be holistically grazing cattle. That's the term they'll use. And the cattle are required in the system to have uh, regenerative agriculture. And that aspect of it, there's a few sources of origin, but I would say probably the most likely origin is um, a man named Alan Savory. He's got a big institute that's heavily funded. It's called the Savory Institute, and uh, they define it as uh, very vaguely. It's uh, a planning process. For you know, dealing with complexity of land and complexity of how to manage land, and um, that's not a perfect definition, but his definition is something like that. And it claims that basically, you know, land managers and farmers need to do what's best uh, for their land and for their animals, and um, it's claimed to to help uh, ensure that livestock are in the right place at the right time. And this whole idea of holistic. Uh, grazing is really it's it's a combination of a few different styles of grazing, but you're essentially grouping cattle together more like a, a herd, how they would be in a wild. I mean, they're largely not native to most areas of the world. They're they're you know creature created uh, essentially, but if you date back to uh, other ruminants on the land like bison, you know they would travel in herds. And they travel away specifically, and uh, there would be predators in that space. And over the course of a uh, time, they wouldn't graze in the same area too often. And that's the idea behind this. It's, it's going back to this kind of way that wild animals roam the earth. And uh, let, me, let me just break that down a bit further. So it's different in a number of ways. Uh, bison, for example, one, they, they forage much differently. They eat different grasses. Cattle sp- specifically loves certain grasses, which means there's only a monoculture of the same grass over time. And it's it's about just as bad to grasslands as growing monocultures uh, over time. Now, grazing as a whole, just like, you know, at the basic, there is a spectrum to how, you know, the worst type of grazing to a better type of grazing. There is a big difference between it. But uh, to compare it to say, to, say, bison, it's much different in the sense of like, there's a predator-prey relationship. There might be wolves. There might be the other predators in this space that's, that's going to uh, help the biodiversity of the region, where in the case of like regenerative ranching, you know, the, the biomass, the cattle is removed from the land. Any predator that's in space is going to be um, uh, culled or killed, and this is happening all across the world, particularly in the, like, the Western US and Western Canada. It's, it, it's, it's a huge damage to, to biodiversity. And there's been a really good study out of actually the University of Alberta. It looked at hundreds of studies. It was a meta-analysis on the response of animals and plants to different types of, of grazing versus recently abandoned pasture. So exclusion of it. And it's not any sort of managed rewilding, but it's basically just letting the land be. This study was published in a really respectable journal called Ecology Letters, and they found that across... All animals, livestock exclusion, increased abundance and diversity. They didn't just kind of look generally at certain areas. They looked at even some of the, the you know worst areas. So high temperature areas with like deserts. This is an area that someone like Alan Savory will say you can reverse desertification through grazing cattle. It's exact opposite of what the academic literature and the infield evidence shows. Actually putting cattle in those areas that you claim will reverse desertification will actually do uh, much worse. It'll do more damage. And if it's such a dry area that maybe cannot grow crops, then you're also going to be bringing in water and feed for this animal. So it's not a very logical thing to to one, possibly damage it further to her biodiversity in the area that could help improve that area of land. But yeah, overall, it's just not a, a good method of going. So this, this all kind of goes back to like this idea of uh, marginal land. That's something that comes up quite often. It's the idea that, you know, this land cannot be used for anything else besides grazing cattle. So we should graze cattle on it. And I think one, that's a very anthropogenic way of seeing the world, a very human-centered way of seeing the world. Just because land might be a bit more marginal, doesn't mean it's not, it's marginal for biodiversity native animals in the space. Typically when you put cattle in the space, they're gonna remove a lot of uh, other native animals that would thrive in that area. But uh, that's not to say, too, that some of these poor quality soils could not uh, support hardy plants. I mean, there's all kinds of cases where you're growing hemp, leafy greens, uh, fruit trees, buckwheat. Some ancient grains are phenomenal in some some more kind of um, damaged soils. But I think there's now a resurgence over the last couple of years of uh, a number of areas being studied and showing that if you let land be, and you let it rewild, and you you essentially credit some of these landowners to manage their land for conservation, truly conservation, and at least dedicate some of their land to rewilding. And if you can show that you're rewilding away and and drawing down carbon in a, in a very science-backed way, then um, then you can make some money. And through this, some studies have shown that this one in particular that I, that I can you can put in the show notes to, to show that 77 to 100 percent of marginal agricultural lands, in this case, it was in New Zealand. Could financially benefit from afforestation. so this, these are areas of land that are used for for sheep farming and uh, and cattle grazing. Instead, these landowners uh, benefited financially from rewilding that land. Now, this is very difficult because there's so much subsidies going towards ranching as a source of funding. But imagine there wasn't. Imagine there was there was not the amount of money going towards uh, ranching that is now propping up that as a as a product that is yeah, it's very damaging. So it shouldn't be it shouldn't be subsidized. So yeah, if I could just kind of sum it up overall, this whole topic, I mean, if we just think big picture, this is what we need to do with things like this, like, is this new solution scalable? So uh, beef cattle use 60% of the world's agricultural land, so a huge amount, Uh, but they account overall for less than 2% of global calories um, and about 5% of global protein consumed. So, and compare that to common plant proteins like, you know, beans, peas, lentils, beef requires more than 20 times more land and emits 20 times more greenhouse gas emissions per gram of protein. And that's from a study from the Union of Concerned Scientists. So, within most of academia, this is not like a, this is not a confusing topic. Uh, We know what we need to shift to. We know we need to shift largely to plant-based diets in different ways. There's, not tons of ways we can talk about why, how I think that can happen and how, how it should happen. But, you know, the, the idea that we need to shift to regenerative ranching, this is largely this new product. It's this new commercial entity. It's not something that is supported by much academic science. And largely the whole Savory Institute has been studied for decades because these ideas aren't new. And, in uh, o- almost anything that is not funded by him in some way, shows that it's not a solution. It shows that overall the methane emissions of any sort of holistic grazing is going to far away anything you might draw down. It's going to use more land. Uh, this, this form of regenerative ranching or holistic grazing uses two times more land than typical grazing. So it's not even it's not even something land-wise that will save you much much time. So yeah, largely it's something that within academics and within science, it's not anything that's up for debate.
0: Yeah. I mean, it, and you, and you, and you, you cite so many studies and meta-analysis and it, it seems shocking to me that it's, it's even an argument if we have all of this data showing that it, it's not beneficial and it doesn't do like the holistic grazing isn't all that's cracked up to be. We've been looking at this topic for a long time now. So it's like, if, if the preponderance of the data is suggesting one thing, and then we're still like, yeah, let's all jump on this <laughs> Regenerative agriculture uh, bandwagon. I had one more question about that, though. Uh, With so with the savoury, you mentioned savoury. There was the whole element of, and I'm not too well versed in this. Hopefully, you can explain it a little better. Of carbon sequestration, that was that's one of like the big, you know, one of the key points that that I think Kiss the Ground and and some other studies have, or proponents of this this style of of farming have have really said like this is why this is such a good thing. So what what is that? And then why is it, why is it that Savory suggested that animals having the grazing and the, the ruminant animals, why that is so good for carbon sequestration, if it is?
1: Yeah. So the idea that Savory uh, will will discuss is that moving animals away in, in this manner and letting land rest will allow vegetation to grow and vegetation grow as as trees, not necessarily trees in that case, but I mean, with, with shrubs and stuff that will grow, that'll draw carbon down. And so the idea is that doing this all across the world is what he wants to do, will draw down carbon. Now, there's a study on this. There's lots of studies on this that looked at this. One was out of Oxford University, and they concluded this is a quote from this, is the maximum global potential in the most optimistic conditions and using the most generous of assumptions. So you can consider that being like regenerative ranching. Uh, It would offset only 20 to 60% of emissions from grazing cows, 4 to 11% of total livestock emissions, and 0.6% to 1.6% of total annual greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, so what's largely happening here is Savory is commissioning these studies uh, in different commercial groups that are involved in this well. They're not factoring in methane, which just makes zero sense to me. And if you don't factor in methane, if you uh, take a piece of land that was intensively cropped before or was uh, overgrazed, and you put this new form of regenerative ranching on there. And you also do some other things that are great, like, you know, applying some compost to the land, uh, not killing it as aggressively. It's going to improve it. But that doesn't mean this is the best way of using that land. And that's largely what's happening. I think what is needed to be asked here is compared to what? there. I haven't seen any study that compares regenerative agriculture to rewilded land in the exact same area. And this is really what needs to, to happen. Be- because regenerative ranching is going to take way more land if you want to feed the world. So you need to show that this is better than letting land be and protecting land and rewilding land that was recently deforested. And they just can't do that. So land is the topic they don't talk about a whole lot. And methane is something they don't even touch because they know if they factor in methane, they're far from carbon neutral. They're a net emitting practice and they might have some benefits compared to the other source of land, but it's not a way to feed the world.
0: So it sounds to me like this kind of goes back to, to in the beginning when you talked about how you were interested initially in, in advertising. They take a kernel of truth and then they present it in a way that makes it seem like like it's a good thing, but they're not showing you the entire picture. They're they're just taking a little bit and taking it out of context, which brings me to my next question I wanted to ask you about. This whole movement of clean meat and Eco burgers. Um, I think it's interesting that these things have become more popular now that we're actually seeing a bit of a trend when it comes to plant-based meats. Like we're seeing, uh, we're seeing things like Beyond and Impossible, and and a slew of other brands that have followed suit that um, have created products that are similar to burgers and, and chicken and things like that. And then also though it's not readily available now, but probably will be in the, ne- in the next 10 to 20 years, you've got the, the cell-based meat and things like that, that are being created in labs and Petri dishes, which are essentially meat, but without the animal, huge companies like McDonald's, like jump on this and say, and, and here in Canada, uh, a one big company, I think that I've seen commercials for is, uh, A&W promoting these pasture fed or clean meat or their eco burgers. So it's almost as if to like convince the customer that like this burger is okay for you to eat, despite the fact that we're in a climate crisis right now, is this all just another, I feel like I know the answer, but this is all just another form of greenwashing.
1: Uh, So are you specifically asking about like, uh, is is clean meat and, you know, plant-based, uh, not the plant-based. I mean,
0: I, I, sorry, I just meant to bring that up because I thought that there was a correlation between what we're seeing in terms of the meat, the actual meat uh, companies Mm -hmm. like promote these clean meat things Mm -hmm. versus now we're seeing a trend of the plant-based meat. So it's almost if they're trying to like, I think, yeah,
1: no, I know exactly what you're saying. I, I think what's happening is, um, these large companies are seeing that. Um, people care about the environment. People want to do their part. People are seeing that they have choices to to make. And largely with food, price and taste is really what dominates why people make choices. But uh, creeping up closely is both health and the environment because it's intertwined in everyone's lives. It's important to people. People want to make the right choices. People don't want to be tricked when they're when they're in a grocery store and they see certain things. So yeah, just like with different forms of energy that they're saying it's now better. It's now eco-friendly. Uh, the same thing is happening with these big meat companies. They're seeing this as a way of, you know, marketing their product to avoid people of, of switching. And it's an easy trick for them to do because people want to hear, uh, you know, the good news about something they're already doing. They don't want to be convinced uh, that they need to switch entirely. This is like a lot of work to do that. Right. So I, um, I think they're not doing it based on any sort of like data evidence. They're doing it in a way of like let's let's prolong our business model. That seems to be what's happening there. So let's get more into um,
0: some of the changes that we can that we can actually make. So you've you've I've seen you post a lot and write a lot about a shift to plant-based diets. and you're not the only one. there's there's major groups, the IPcc, the the Lancet Food report, like there's all of these reports that have come out from huge, science bodies that have suggested a shift toward a plant-based diet or Mediterranean diet um, is not only better for your personal health, but for the health of the, the planet. In terms of the shift for food production, if we're shifting from a more animal-based diet where everybody's consuming you know, so many uh, meat products versus one where it's more plant-based. How big of a change would do you think that we would need to make, or do you think that um, in terms of the food systems that we have, since we're already producing so much crop to feed the animals, that it would be a fairly easy shift to move in that direction?
1: Yeah, it largely would because um, there's just so much land we're using for for grazing animals and for feed crops alone. So there's some figures in terms of, for for data, for actual crops used for for species, so for for animals. So with its corn globally, about 50% of all corn globally is fed to confined animals. Uh, With soy, it's about 80%. Uh, So just think of that. Not only is that amount of uh, soy grown directly for confined animals, but it's at a loss too, because then they're feeding it to animals that convert it at about a 10% efficiency. So just some very basic math can show that we're going to save so much land in this case. We're going to emit less greenhouse gas emissions. We can protect huge amounts of land to, to do this. And in turn, hopefully protect it and allow some biodiversity to come back. Because the, the biodiversity picture in this whole thing is, it's largely something that we don't talk about. So much of the environmental space is, is dominated by climate change and dominated specifically by, by carbon. But, you know, biodiversity and its impacts are just as much of a crisis as, um, as climate change. And if you look at just some of like, you know, the reports in this space, there's one from WWF, the World Wildlife Fund, and they showed that food systems have caused uh, 70% of biodiversity loss on land, 50% of biodiversity loss in water, and uh, 80% of all global deforestation. And, you know, just with oceans, I know we haven't talked about oceans as much, and we probably won't because it's like a huge topic on its own. But there was a report by the Intergovernmental Panel on Biodiversity and Ecosystem Services. And what they showed is uh, 55% of the ocean is now covered by industrial fishing. And 66% of global marine environment has been altered by human actions. So this is largely, again, it's it's a food system dominated by consuming animals, and in this case, fish. And something that people don't necessarily know a whole lot about with fish is 50% of all fish now consumed is from fish farming. And that's like aquaculture. And that has huge consequences for uh, biodiversity because a lot of those species that are farmed intensively in the ocean will uh, get out of the the net and uh, hurt other native uh, living fish in the area. But also there's huge amounts of uh, nitrogen and phosphorus runoff leading to uh, massive amounts of dead zones. So what's happening there, there is you can feed more people more fish, but it causes in some cases more environmental damage than uh than even catching them wild so it's not a solution and i think just overall yeah biodiversity should be a a key thing to consider in all this i would love to to have you back
0: on to talk just do something on on because like you said it's it's its own topic there the the oceans and, and 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 industrial fishing in particular there's so much data to, to dig into that. But I think that's a really good point. Like in our conversation, um, a lot of people, when, when, when they hear the word, the term, the, the words meat consumption, I don't think that there's necessarily like a connection in their head between fish and meat. There's, it's like its own thing, even though yeah. it's an animal, yeah. the effect at animal agriculture, even, even land animal agriculture, like you said, the environmental runoffs, from creeks and streams and rivers into the oceans, create these dead zones. And it's, it's, it's a domino effect. I want to go back to when we were talking about the plant-based meats and cell based meats and things like that. Specifically, mm. I want to talk about the the plant-based meats for, 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 a minute. So it would be great if we could get everyone to shift toward a plant-based diet or even a Mediterranean diet, where at least the amount of animal products that they're, that people are eating has been largely reduced, but that's probably unlikely in the future. So, or at least it'll be difficult to get people all on the same page, but there, there has been, like we said, an interest in these plant-based meats. I want to know what the data actually says about that, because you just like all these, these plant products, every time these things come out, you get a lot of pushback from the other camps, right? So plant-based meats come out beyond impossible. They use, I think impossible soy. I forgot what beyond uses, but you know, they, they have their own production lines and their factories and things like that. So then what kind of difference does that type of production have versus traditional animal agriculture? I've seen people say that it's actually worse, um, that it's not as environmentally friendly as some people say it is or as it's promoted, but what, what do we actually know about that in terms of, of emissions and uh, environmental impact and electricity resources, things like
1: that? Yeah. So fundamentally, we know what, for the most part, they're made from. They're made from plant sources of protein. And uh, that in itself, we have tons of data on that go back decades. We know that this is a good source for the environment from many different angles, from greenhouse gases, from land use, biodiversity, fresh water. So in that sense, these products are no different. Uh, Now, there is a need for more studies on this. Uh, We should be comparing uh, this switch to uh, not only show the difference, but also decide where funding goes for food, because uh, there's no reason that you know, healthy sources of food, fruits, vegetables, all that stuff should be the most expensive things in the grocery store and they are, and it's getting worse. So we should be funding in a way that makes healthy, environmentally friendly food, something that is uh, abundantly available and uh, not expensive. Uh, so I think that's a big part of the problem. But yeah, Beyond Burger, there's been life cycle analysis looking at a you know quarter pound Beyond Burger comparison to a quarter pound beef burger. And, uh, you know, they've showed that it uses 99 percent less water, 93 percent less land, 90 percent less greenhouse gases and um, about half the amount of energy. Uh, now, to keep in mind, these studies are funded by them. Uh, So I think that's something you should take with a grain of salt. But if we just threw out all studies that were funded by industry, there largely wouldn't be much anymore because so much uh, academic research now requires some sort of funding. Um, And I think it's just something that you uh, should keep in mind in like any sort of critical analysis you're doing. But I mean, there's other studies, too, that looked at Impossible Foods showed about the same thing. You mentioned clean meat earlier. Again, I think clean meat and and cultured meat, whatever you want to call it, would be a huge solution too. Now, in terms of energy, it probably uh, wouldn't use a whole lot less. It all depends. It's going to require huge amounts of essentially like vats, like brewery type vats to to do this. And it it could use probably similar amount of energy. Uh, There's still more research needed to to see, but with cultured meat, it's going to save huge amounts of land and this is such a key player in this whole environmental issue it's how much land is used and i think i think ideally these companies that are coming out making either plant based products or clean meat are you know they're advocating for for all kinds of ways that they can improve the environmental situation but also uh, they should be looking at doing like land back strategies to, to give land back to indigenous populations that it was taken from. And if you look back at like the history of cattle, you'll see that largely cattle was used as a tool for colonization, which again, is a topic on its own. Not something we can cover, but like, it's, it's something that like clean meat can be a, such a huge uh, win in this space just because it's freeing up so much land. And, you know, for me, I would say plant-based meats are, are, uh, the way to go, obviously whole food plant-based, I think is like, you know, the, the, the best option in this case for your health, uh, for the planet. Uh, but, you know, in terms of convincing the whole world to, to adopt a whole food plant-based diet is just very unlikely. Uh, so that's where these plant-based meats come in. That's where uh, clean meat can come in and they can you know alter the, the profile nutritionally with, with clean meat to uh, replicate as best as possible uh, uh, meat. And, It seems like it's far away, but like it's been. uh, I think it was approved in Singapore, and there's uh, just chicken being sold there. Um, I heard in the states there's all kinds of reviews happening to to approve clean meat from being sold uh, there. Probably within a year, I'd say. Uh, To some extent, it'll probably be very expensive at first. But all it would take is like you know maybe a few years from now, a big company like McDonald's picking up one or two options that are clean meat, and I'm not I'm not convinced that people will be you know, grossed out by like something made in a lab, because I mean, look at what you're eating now from McDonald's, right? Like, it's just, and I guess that's part of the problem. People don't really know and people don't want to know what they're eating, but, um, you know, people will say that like, you know, something made in a lab is, is gross, but I don't buy it. People buy beer all the time. That's made. That's made in like the exact same type of brewery, right? And so it's no different. There's nothing, nothing to be worried about there. Yeah. And to be clear, like I've invested zero in clean meat or plant-based meats. Uh, I'm not paid by any of them. I just think it's probably one of the best solutions we have in, in terms of like actively shifting people in this direction.
0: It's always shocked me that people have looked at a veggie burger and thought that was disgusting, but they'll eat a hot dog. (laughs) It just makes no sense. Um, I feel like this, so this topic is, is, is huge. It's vast. And like, I've already alluded to, like I could go into a million different tangents with you and I would love to in the future. I'd love to talk about indigenous farming practices and delve into that a little more and conversation about dead zones in the ocean and industrial fishing, but I kind of want to wrap it up today. I just had a couple more questions for you. Just two more. I wanted to, so I know that you, uh, uh, one of our first guests on the podcast was Dr. Tushar Mehta. Um, you've worked with him and then uh, Nitel uh, Jethal, who eventually I hope we'll get on the show too, but you, all three of you are the co-founders of a resource called the Plant uh, plantbaseddata.org. Can you tell me a little bit about this and then what you contribute to it?
1: Yeah. So this has been like just a side project uh, for, for a long time. Tushar and I have both uh, held databases of peer reviewed papers, dating back uh, a long, long time. And it's just something that you know we've had, people have asked us questions, we've done presentations, uh, you dig through it, you, you find uh, the best you know, peer review data. And what we found is just, there's so much of it that's uh, inaccessible. There's so much of the work that we've already done, just kind of uh, like compiling this data, putting it into folders, doing summaries of some key papers. Uh, doing write-ups that kind of link to some of the best scientific literature in the space. About a year and a half ago now, we just decided, let's just throw it up on a site, you know, kind of grassroots and let's, let's make it accessible to as many people as possible. Toucher, I mean, he's just, um, you've had him on. He's a genius. This guy's, he's phenomenal. He's not only very knowledgeable in the health side, but can hold his own on the environmental side and, and also pandemic. So for me, for the most part, I manage the environmental section with Toucher. Uh, But we have a huge database on health too. Uh, We have a major database on, you know, pandemics and the links between, you know, zoonotic diseases and agriculture. And Natal has done a great job putting together like an economics and policy section, which I think is just so important in this whole topic too, to figure out, okay, where's the money going? How do we make this shift? And uh, so I think overall, that is something that can be helpful to uh, anyone writing in the space, different academics, students. Uh, even anyone that just has been kind of told something and you want to kind of see, okay, well, what is kind of the best scientific literature show in this space? What is the meta-analyses uh, on a topic show? Because I think more than ever and increasingly, there's just so much misinformation out there. And we need to find what is the best source of information, challenge our beliefs, continue to kind of, you know, as best as possible, find out what's true. And not everyone's going to dive and dive in and read all these scientific papers, but if we can kind of do a couple summaries of it, uh, if we can make it accessible and help others, all kinds of other people telling stories and writing stories and communicating in different ways, if we can help them kind of find the best research, then, um, you know, I think that's, that's largely why we did that. And it seems to be helping some people. It's a,
0: yeah, it's a phenomenal resource and it's really comprehensive. So I, I highly recommend anyone listening to check it out. We'll link it in the show notes. And then before I let you go, I just had one question. Um, if somebody's been listening to this conversation, and they feel inspired to get involved, to make some changes. Your advice, what's some of the, the, the simplest uh, steps that they could do that they could consider if they want to start making better choices as a consumer?
1: Yeah, I, I would say just from from what I know about like the psychology of change is very difficult. So like you know, perfection is the enemy of good. You know, do do what you can to make shifts in a direction that uh, you want to do based on, you know, quality evidence. Uh, I, I think it's not accessible to everyone. I really don't. I think systemically we need to do a much better job of making going plant based easier, uh, more inexpensive. Uh, you know, if you're eating a whole food, plant-based diet, I would say it is a lot cheaper. But if you're, you're getting some of these, um, you know, plant-based meats, they're expensive, and they shouldn't be. Uh, why do they cost so much? They do so much less environmental damage, uh, and that's not the consumer's fault. That's not the individual's fault. And I think just you know being kind to yourself is important too in any of these changes because like food is ingrained in in everyone. It's you know what you're grown up on. There's cultures, there's traditions, there's uh, your families that are, are involved. So it's a difficult process. Um, but I think the, the benefits of making a shift to plant-based are, are countless. There's, there's all kinds of health benefits, of course. In terms of the environmental footprint, there's been studies of this. It, it's shown in, in rich countries like Canada to uh, decrease your ecological footprint by at least 20%, but maybe even as high as about 40% on an individual basis. And that's something you have access to do every day, three times a day. Um, not everyone has access to go buy solar panels and put them up on your roof, as much as that can be a good decision, too. Uh, can be expensive. It shouldn't be, but it is. So I think like in terms of like making environmental decisions yourself, there's all kinds of things you can do Uh, shifting towards a plant-based diet uh, from everything I've read from being on the other side of eating a high meat diet. This is from everything I've seen. It's one of the best actions you can do for, for shifting to, you know, an individual lower carbon footprint and uh yeah i would say just go to a, a vegan restaurant near you uh look at recipes uh learn about how you can replicate the exact same meals you're you're already loving and enjoying that's kind of what i did myself just like quickly over time this was before i had kids but when i had all kinds of time to kind of do it quickly and uh uh, yeah it was just being inspired by this kind of like new new thing and and uh and the recipes online they're just abundantly uh there's an abundant amount of them so yeah that would be my advice take a look and just overall in terms of like appreciating nature like get out of nature go enjoy some nature you can't do a whole lot during this you know a pandemic in, inside at times so like go out and find nature near you and enjoy it because uh, that's something that for me, it sparked my interest in it. Uh, I think just, you know, going out and visiting, whether it's a big adventure or a small one can, can do a lot for your own health and also just appreciation of the world outside of humans, you know?
0: It's been a real pleasure talking with you. I had a lot of fun in this conversation. And like I said, I hope in the future you can come back on and we can get into some more of this uh, this field. Thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. This podcast featured royalty-free music from bensound.com. A very special thanks to our guests for speaking with us and sharing their insights. And, of course, thank you for listening. The Plant-Based Canada podcast is an initiative of the group Plant-Based Canada, which aims to educate the public and health professionals on the evidence-based benefits of plant-based whole food nutrition for individual and planetary health. To learn more about the show, visit our website, www.plantbasedcanada.org, and stay up to date by following us on Instagram and Facebook at plantbasedcanada.org and our Plant-Based Canada YouTube channel. Also, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you download your podcasts.